Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, how you can build businesses and wealth that would outlive the founders and have sustained impact, not only over time, but also over space. And we invite guests from all over the world, both business owners as well as expert teachers, to share a thing or two on how we can embrace and further our legacy journeys in an environment of authenticity, curiosity and vulnerability. This week, I was joined by an impeccable guest, Stephanie Ellis-Smith, who's an independent philanthropic advisor, coach and mentor for ultra high net worth individuals, families and foundations. And she really helps her clients in clarifying their giving in light of their goals, empowering them to use their wealth, talents, experience and connections to improve the lives of those around them. Her clients achieve greater impact with their giving, have more joy from it and engage their family in philanthropy. She's a leader with over 20 years of experience in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors, and I really enjoyed our conversation. We had a lot of helpful tips for rising generation members that are seeking how to collaborate better with the founding gens in terms of philanthropy, questions around how to embark upon one's philanthropic journeys, ethical considerations when thinking about philanthropy. And just just awesome other incredible awesome tips that so I recommend that you tune in, enjoy, and share this episode with someone that you know is seeking to learn how to engage family members in philanthropy, particularly if they are next generation members themselves. Thank you so much. Hi Stephanie, welcome to the Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I so appreciate the invitation. Yes, I'm really, I've been very excited about our conversation. Um, before we get into it, I'd love for you to share. I mean, today you are CEO and founder of Philo Engaged Giving, but how did you get to where you are today? What's the backstory? Oh my gosh. <clears throat> you know, the backstory, uh, like many folks, is a long and winding path of following zeitgeist and saying yes and taking risks. Ironically and interestingly enough, um, I started out path of becoming a research scientist. So I was planning to be uh, an MD, PhD programs. I was very interested in uh, microbiology and virology. I was at UCLA and that's what brought me up to the University of Washington in Seattle, where I still live now. Uh, and I was hired to work on retrovirus uh, research around AIDS um, back in the early nineties. So it was a really big deal. Long story short, as I said, a long and winding path, I ended up thinking that um, this was actually not going to be the work for me. I am a people person. Mm. I do enjoy the connectivity um, and direct uh, access to folks as much as I loved being mm. a bench scientist. Um, it wasn't really speaking to everything that I think I had in me. And I took a big chance and I ended up pulling out of those programs, pulling, withdrawing applications. It was very dramatic. And then I started, uh, which is another very long story that I won't get into. I started, um, my, I found myself in, in the arts and it was because I ended up working with the artist Jacob Lawrence and his wife, uh, Gwen Knight Lawrence. They were living in Seattle at the time. 
And I didn't know what to do with myself. And I found that they were looking for volunteers, this art history program to catalog his entire life's work. And I said, well, you know, they said, we just need someone who could handle a lot of information is organized with data. I'm like, well, I can do that. I, I didn't have any other like traditional marketable skills, given I was so highly specialized. And that turned into this full-time job. And a lot of that work was, of course, working with Jacob and Gwen, which was the privilege of a lifetime. But also it was dealing with collectors and philanthropists and folks who had his works and talking with them about sharing them. Folks who've been, you know, very nervous about having photographers come into their home and having their work rephotographed for public consumption and having these really interesting conversations about, I guess you would call it, you know, public assets that are held in private hands. And that's how Jake, the artist, really saw his work as something that he did for the public, but they were held privately. So how do we talk to private ownership about sharing things publicly? And I think if I think about it and looking back and looking at it in those terms, that was slowly the beginning of the work that I do today. And then there were other steps, but that's a sort of a, a quick and dirty version of um, how this all came to be. Incredible. I loved what you said about... Um... The work was really about public assets held in private hands. And I think that's actually quite a good way to capture probably the work you're doing today, um, raising consciousness around families and, excuse me, um, their responsibilities towards society and the public whilst they may own these assets and have these resources privately, which I'd love to unpack. But before we get into that, tell us more about what your company does and how you work with business families. Sure. So our firm is uh, what's called a philanthropic advisory firm. We work with uh, ultra high net worth, high profile individuals, families, um, occasionally corporations, um, helping them make philanthropic decisions that geared towards impact, meaning, and I guess I would impact meaning and essentially just figuring out interesting ways to find um, to find the way philanthropy can speak to each individual person. And I, <clears throat> I was thinking and sort of stuttering a little bit about that um, as I was just trying to find a good way to sort of share it. Because interestingly enough, like the work that you do, Mikate, all families are different and mm. all the time they're looking for different things. And so I always hesitate and sometimes even stumble trying to put a a wrapper around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I need to get better at that. I need to get better at that. But I'm always very hesitant. And maybe I'm being too literal to wrap all of our clients, say that they're all looking for the same thing. They're, it's wildly mm. different. But ultimately, yes, it is helping them create meaningful philanthropic programs that work for the family or the corporation themselves. Really and that takes a million different ways. I'm so sure. I'd love to delve into how you go about doing that in terms of when you identify working with clients and helping them grapple with their wealth identities and as a collective and then as individuals. Like you kind of alluded to, philanthropy means different things to different families, but I'd also imagine to different family members as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you align... <clears throat> the me with the we like the collective versus the individual particularly around the wealth identity right that's really tricky um when we have multi-generational families or even a family an immediate family of four three six a parent 
uh, parent cup pair and uh, their children, that is a really unusual, it's an unusual way, I think, for a lot of folks in philanthropy to start the work. I tend to start that way uh, because I like to be pretty clear about what philanthropy is. Um, it is about money. A lot of folks sometimes in our field, <clears throat> and this has changed a, a lot in these past few years, particularly after COVID and all of the economic uncertainty that came in its wake, um, recessionary scares and all of that. But many folks in my field feel uncomfortable sometimes really equating philanthropy with the actual money aspect because money is power. And it's weird talking about that when you're when you're trying to get into a space that's philanthropic when you want to do good about people. So like, I really don't, so folks would say, I really don't want to talk about myself and everything that I have because it's actually really not about me. And I think it's, it's wrong personally to pull mm. ourselves as philanthropists, as wealth holders out of that conversation because we are a part of that ecosystem. And being able to look at oneself and one's wealth honestly and carefully and thoughtfully makes you a better and more thoughtful philanthropist because you're, you're approaching it with a sense of honesty and integrity. Mm -hmm. um, so when we have these conversations with number of different folks in the family, it can be quite challenging for that reason. I mean, imagine if there was the wealth creator who rightly may feel very proud of his or her accomplishments, you know, creating all of this. It's in no way is it's easy, no matter how much luck is involved, there is still some work, <clears throat> a lot of work for entrepreneurs or whomever creating, you know, wealth for, for families. And there's reasons for them to feel very proud of that. Whereas inheritors, one generation down, maybe two generations down, um, especially too, if they weren't, if they didn't witness the sacrifice and if they didn't see everything mm -hmm. that went into it, they may all feel like, okay, well, I didn't earn any of this. I'm much more keen to give this away and have it done, have it be doing some other uh, work for the betterment of other people because, you know, we're fine, but they may not have that touchstone to what the family was like pre-wealth or, you know, how the sacrifices, again, that the person has made. So it is having to have deep conversations, honest conversations with every member of the family from different perspectives, one-on-one, -on -one, together. How do we have these conversations together that's respectful, yet also at the same time, very honest. And then trying to collectively, because I don't see it as actually my job, I can facilitate, but this is their name, this is their wealth, and this is their family. I can help you find a way forward and a way through, but the work is really that of the family. And I think that's where I can be the most helpful is, is to help make the family um, find that work easier and more meaningful, but that they can actually own it because these are actually their decisions and the decisions that they're going to have to live with long after I'm gone. So I think there's a has, has to be a sense of ownership mm -hmm. and finding a way to, like I say, cut a path through that has some heft and, and soul to it and that it's not flat. I mean, okay, well, I'll mm, give you that you if you give me flat, meaning, well, I'll, I'll give you that if you give me that. Mm. Where it's just everyone just sort of bargaining and you just sort of, well, I'll just cut a path through and we can get there. But everyone's kind of meh about it. You know, There's that's where it could be. Yeah, where folks can feel a little apathetic because, well, you know, yeah, we, we agreed, but no one's really excited about right. what you agreed upon. 
you know, and, and philanthropy is challenging in that respect because it's not a, it's not a real deal. You know, you don't have to be philanthropic. So if you're, if you're going to do this work, it has to animate you in some way. So how do we find that way through where folks feel like they're being heard on either side or wherever they are in, in, in the discussions, but everyone ends up still on the other side with something that they're kind of excited about. Like I could, okay, yeah, you know, I can get behind this. This is actually kind of nice. It's not initially what I thought, but this is good because otherwise, where do you get that um, drive and soul and meaning and this holy grail search that every philanthropist wants and that is impact? Initially, it comes from oneself mm. and from your animating desire to be a part of the sector. Mm. And how do you, that's such an interesting insight, how do you balance this need for engagement, excitement with impact? Because sometimes the activities that drive that are more impactful are not necessarily the most interesting, exciting, and not as um, fulfilling. It might be advocacy work, for instance. It may be, mm-hmm. right? So it may be further down the, the, the value chain, or value chain is so I'm obviously such an entrepreneur, but further down the chain where you're disconnected from the end beneficiaries of the philanthropic activities mm-hmm. how do you balance that out in such a way where we are optimizing on impacts but also engaging the family like you said ensuring that there is this soul that we don't have this flat apathy experience right right, right. <clears throat> excuse me that's a great question and you know the way we start our work um is a lot of intense personal engagement we have a, a, an unusually long discovery period, maybe compared to other sectors, finance or legal. Um, ours is fairly long um, and involved because we do need to ask exactly these questions, Nikkei, that you just asked. What are the things that sound really that sound most interesting to you? There's some folks who really kind of get off on the back end technical admin side because it's really tangible and there's a lot to do there and they feel mm-hmm. like oh this is i'm really making a difference i'm i'm uh, contributing and doing something that i can see you know this box was ticked this was not here before and i did that and that's great and then there are other folks who really want um the emotional connection the mm-hmm. direct connection with beneficiaries and of course there's folks in between some folks really love the advocacy work they want to be out front you know, organizing other donors behind causes and issues. So the key is really trying to figure out what are going to be the things that are going to animate folks the most, those who want to be involved. There are others Mm -hmm. who are like, you know, I, you know, I, I really am supportive of this. I want our family to be involved, but it's a time and place of life. Mm -hmm. You might be building your career, starting a family. That's not a good time to be 100% and deeply engaged in philanthropy because it's a lot of work. And um, they, those folks may say, you know, I could see maybe later once my kids are older and I'm not driving around all over town for sports practices and lessons and all of that, but maybe later, that's all okay. But it is, again, uh, important for folks to be honest. And mm-hmm. we try to pull that out to make sure like, where are you in your life's spectrum? Is this a good time for this? And if it's not, that is okay. Then let's look at these types of issues, causes, things that you can do that can be very impactful but that don't require your, you know, deep engagement. Mm. And so the, the, and that's the, maybe the advantage of the field that it is so 
broad um, and there's so much that folks can do. It's just a matter of really trying to find where you're going to have the best fit at any stage of your life. Mm. And the last thing I'll say about that is we have this really neat graphic that we use and I feel like folks really in, really resonates uh, with them. And it's called the Philanthropic Learning Curve. And it was created by a man named uh, Peter Karoff and it, he's uh, one of the founders of the Philanthropic Initiative or TPI. And he kind of really outlines just sort of the level of the levels of engagement uh, in philanthropy for your average person. And folks can really see where they are in the field. You start off just by being a donor, you know, you're just um, being reactive, responding to uh, requests. Then you want to start getting more organized as the next level. Typically that's where we come in and a little bit later. Then you want to start learning and then, you know, step by step by step by step. And a lot of times folks really are excited about, okay, I, I'd be very happy if I just ended here. Some people want to get to the very top, which is perfect alignment between, you know, mission and purpose and community needs. But it's a nice little tool to see like where you are and where you can go in this world. Mm, mm. I'm really intrigued about um, several things. My brain is buzzing. The first thing is in a family setting and where we have mm -hmm. a transition generationally. Um, how do we, like you said, philanthropy is not a deal. It's not um, business. How do we ensure that there's continuity with the rising generation who may have different ideas, different passions, different causes? How do we ensure continuity of this impact over time? Well, um, one way, there's one way to, there's a, a, I think a good way to do it. And then there's also the other uh, answer, which is there may not be, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, but when folks do have it and, or they are striving for it, it's bringing the next generation, the younger folks on as soon and as early as possible, getting their buy-in early. And some folks are, are very, very good at that and bring children in as young as five, six, you know, age appropriately. They're, may not, they're not sitting at a boardroom uh, looking through grant proposals. <clears throat> um, but they're doing things that are appropriate for their age. Um, there's a great foundation called the, I think it's the Frida Fox Foundation based in Los Angeles. And they um, have made it very public and it's all on their website about how they engage the youngest of members, uh, literally as young as like six to eight. And they grad gradually move their way through the family foundation until they get their space on the board as an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, they did that as far as I understand, because they really did want some level of continuity or if the foundation does change a little bit, that it's a collective change that the entire family, young and old, are agreeing upon together. Not one generation coming in saying, what have you all been doing all this time? This is ridiculous. We're going to start, start all over and we're going to do something all on our own. This is a way for this family to make things much more of a collective, collective decision making and collective ownership. Hmm. Other times, as... Um, foundations are sort of changing hands and the next generation are coming in. Sometimes the, say, G1 or two, the previous ones, the ones who are maybe making their way out, will pass the baton to them and say, this is what we've been doing. If they can, this is why, which is always very important to be intentional. This is what we're doing. This is why. This is what 
prompted us to get into this area. Mm. Here's what we've been successful at from our perspective. Here's where I think we have fallen short from what our goals are. We're more than happy for you to take the reins now and guide us either in this area or in a new way and then let go. When you find tension is when they're still sitting there and the G1, G2 are not letting go, but Mm. are still requesting G3, 4, even 5 to be there, but not allowing them to have uh, control and um, a say. So it's about um, it's about sharing of sharing of power, sharing of impact, and bringing people on in a way that's very intentional and thoughtful, and knowing that things indeed may change. Mm-hmm. I, I'm intrigued by what you said earlier at the start of the recording with respect to essentially a lot of times people struggle to reconcile being wealthy and doing good, like reconciling their wealth identity and um, for wealth owners and then for inheritors feeling this sense of did I earn this is this mine is it mine to give away or to do anything with it I'd love for Mm -hmm. you to speak more to that yeah absolutely and and actually it kind of ties back a little bit to this last question that you were just asking about Mm -hmm. you know the generational shift and and transfer one thing that we're seeing that relates those two concepts to concepts together are younger generations coming on board to foundations and changing them from being in perpetuity to limited life, meaning Mm. sunsetting their family foundations. Because to your point of what you just said, a lot of folks are saying needs are urgent now. What Mm. are we holding on to this for long-term is, is having money and they would say sometimes, you know, lording it over other people, making decisions that are we really qualified to be making actually these decisions over other folks in perpetuity? Is that the best and highest use of our wealth? They're asking mm-hmm. these kinds of questions. And typically um, these are younger generations that are coming coming through and, and asking these really hard questions. And it's not to say that um, inheritors, I'm sorry, that wealth creators are not participating in this. There are some high profile folks who are, But it is, I think, an opportunity and a world that we're in right now where increasingly folks are interrogating their sources of wealth, historical, um, contemporary. What did it take? What did it take to accumulate all of this? Who, who Who made sacrifices? Who was sacrificed for all this, you know, to happen? Um, it's com- it's complex. It's very, very complex. And, and, and I think having these conversations in the philanthropic realm, I think makes sense because you're coming at this with the place of like, well, how do we make the world better? And is, is the ability to recreate what we were able to do? Is that, is that actually going to be the answer? Some people may say, yes, I think it depends on who it is. Um, I would say, you know, we, I, occasionally we have um, clients who are of color, black or immigrant. And I will say candidly, they are not having these conversations, particularly, um, at least not not to me, um, black wealth creators, black inheritors. Um, be it, historically, how difficult it has been to penetrate the upper echelons of wealth in this society. 
mm. and that we still have such a profound racial wealth gap. These are conversations that I think are more exclusively happening in the white community where mm. white uh, folks have benefited tremendously from, you know, tax legislation, um, land, land grants, you know, all these things that we know about in American history <clears throat> and many either immigrants and uh, formerly enslaved African-Americans have not had that benefit. So those folks who are coming in and who are creators or inheritors, not thinking like that so much. This is our, this is our moment. Uh, we are supporting many uh, many other family members who have not benefited as we have. And so we actually need this wealth mm. to help generate more opportunity for our family because we're not even yet. It's not a, it's not a loving level playing field in that respect. So the conversations I think are different and I wanted to be really clear about who we're talking about. Mm. Um, predominantly vastly uh, white. And it's a very different conversation for black Americans and some immigrants. Hmm. This is like my mind is just going in different directions. I'm thinking it's um it's essentially um firstly having very difficult conversations within families that um may need to be had and thinking through the lens of holistically of our wealth and not just thinking in one compartment we make yeah. our money and in one compartment we do good with it. And it's really questioning how we're making our money, where did that money come from? Are there other ways beyond formal philanthropy where we can um, be more ethical, fair in the way we make our money? But I guess um, my my question is is then I would assume that this kind of um, these types of highlighting this within families may then lead to some family members saying being more inclined towards wealth preservation than others. Others may want to give it all away. How do you manage that tension between different people's appetites and attitudes towards the wealth? These are difficult questions, Stephanie, I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are. And you know, it's tough. I'm trying to trying to see how I can maybe share an anecdote without, mm. you know, divulging mm -hmm. too much. Um, but we have had that. Um, that kind of discussion with a particular family that had a couple of folks who, and they were in the same generation, both in their thirties, one who was very focused on wealth preservation. Mm. Um, I am very proud of this. And this is a part of my identity. I mean, not wrong. Mm. Um, and then a sibling who was like, what is all this for? How much is enough? You know, right. we have, we have enough to keep, you know, this family line going for however many more generations. Um, isn't this isn't isn't this enough at this point? At what point are we satisfied and we're ready to start turning this over to others? We won, you know. We don't need to keep winning. We we've already won. This is this is good. And the sibling was like, well, you know, our children and their children should know about what came out of this. These are tough decisions. Uh, in this particular case, <clears throat> um, they ended up deciding to do one larger family thing. The parents actually came around to the the sort of limited life foundation decision, mm -hmm. um, while at the same time, they already had multiple uh, giving vehicles. And so one uh, just was let, created for, in, um, sorry, slated for in perpetuity. And then another 
was limited life, but they wanted the limited life one to have a bigger profile because they wanted to really lead by example with peers to say that this can be done. You can do this. You can still be a leader and pillar in your community by showing, you know, we're doing this for 10 more years. Hmm. And then, and then we're closing up shop. We're going to actively work on sunsetting this work um, over time and do it as a plan. And then everything else beyond that will be just sort of personal philanthropy, or we can mm-hmm. get together and do things in a more informal way. But this formal, big to-do and, and uh, activities that they had, they said, it's, it's time to start wrapping this up. And we can mm-hmm. do things in a different way, um, either individually um, going forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens. But that was just last year. So it's very fresh. Mm, that's a really helpful example. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious because most of the listeners here are rising generation leaders, whether already collaborating with their family members around philanthropy or starting to think through it. Um, mm-hmm. Given the common challenge that you highlighted around the um, wealth identity and this sense of, is it mine? Do I have, you know, do I have a right to make decisions with respect to that? To what extent can I influence decision-making with my parents? Do you have any tips for um, rising gens? Uh, absolutely. Candid conversations. Mm-hmm. Straight up ask. Um, and it's hard to do sometimes. Straight up ask. Straight up ask. <laughs> I mean, how else are we going to get to it, right? Right. Other than just sort of diving right in. Uh, and, and, I, and I find that when folks are able to just say the thing, ask mm-hmm. the question, it opens up all of the other little bits and bobs that have sort of, that kind of float around that same question that also helps animate a larger activity of, of the foundation. So it's, it opens up a, a lot more than just that one question. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of clears the path in a way. Uh, for better conversation. You you get data points. You may not always get the answer that you want. It may not always be appreciated. Uh, if you get significant pushback or a non-answer, that's an answer. That's also a data point. And you're, that's where you think, okay, this is now interesting. Um, this doesn't work. You know, um, how do we, how do we have these conversations now if we can't actually properly have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of have to, you know, move to another level. But I think to start by putting it out there on the table mm-hmm. and that's, and that's governance. And if you're right. already involved um, and this is whether it's, you know, the family business side or the family philanthropic side, succession planning and governance is the same on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's any sense of desire to have a productive working relationship, you know, outside of the interpersonal family um, activities, it's crucial. Mm. It's absolutely crucial. And governance accession, and there's a lot of literature on that. Um, And I think even, I would even say that you can take a lot from the the business and the family business side and still apply it to philanthropy Mm. um, to make sure to really kind of lean in on that because that is a part of your due diligence regardless whether you hear the mm. answer that, you know, whether you hear the answer that you want or not, um, the questions actually need to be uh, answered just just for the sake of, I mean, you created this entity and structure. Mm. So it requires, it requires these conversations. Mm. That's so, so, so 
so many nuggets in there. And on the educational side, for folks that are thinking through philanthropy, rising gems, what do you recommend? How do they get started in learning? Like, for instance, thinking through the structure, should this be as corporate social responsibility under the family mm-hmm. business? Should mm-hmm. we start a family foundation? Should we use a DAF? Like all these various options and the governance around how we make decisions, identify causes. What would you recommend in terms of education? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, one of the best resources that I can recommend is the National Center for Family Philanthropy, mm-hmm. NCFP. Um, disclaimer, uh, I'm a member of their board of directors, uh, but they have an, a pretty amazing research re- resource page um, that is great uh, for families, whether they're just beginning their steps in philanthropy or they're further along and just looking for more uh, education and more ideas. Um, it's a great resource. The other one that I would use, and they just revamped their website and I think has a, a really um, good newly redone page, and that's the Center for Effective Philanthropy, CEP. Um, and they have a lot of uh, a lot of that is more research. I think it's a little less how-to, but um, it's a lot more data and research, mm. but really interesting. And there's, uh, I think, a whole page dedicated to um, source, a uh, source page dedicated to individuals and family. But NCFP, for sure, number one. Awesome. I think it's a lot of good stuff there, a lot of good nuggets. Yeah. And of course, they're more than welcome to reach out to philanthropic advisors. That's what we're here for. And there's many of us, um, they're generalists like we are. They're folks who I would say work kind of upstream in a way as we do earlier in the process about purpose, meaning, governance, planning, and then kind of work our way down towards the programmatic and the issue areas and all of that. And then there are also folks who work more exclusively downstream around issue areas deep dives into um, causes, particular nonprofits, white papers. So there's um, advisory services uh, across the whole spectrum. Um, And I would just encourage anyone who's listening, who feels that they can be, um, who who needs that kind of support to not be afraid to reach out for that kind of help. Because it's a big, big field. Mm, It really is. (laughs) It's a lot and it's complicated. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance in that. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Um, if anyone would like to get hold of you and reach out to you, how best can they um, contact you? Yeah, they're more than welcome to first check out our website. Um, look at it. See if the feel feels like you. Um, because I think mm-hmm. the best thing that folks need to do if they're considering hiring a philanthropic advisor, they need to find someone that they feel that they can trust, that mm. they can talk to. Um, and so I always say, look at their websites or talk with them and see if you kind of vibe, if it really feels like it's good, like, oh, I can like this person. I can like, I don't mm. mind telling them all of our ins and outs of our a family, of our situation. And then of course, they're more than welcome to, if that feels good, then they're more than welcome to reach me um, via email at stephanie at mm. philagiving.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love that conversation with Stephanie. She comes with 
Yes, and she's just a well of knowledge and expertise, and I really enjoyed just unpacking her brain on this topic. I really loved when we touched on the mindset of wealth and really stepping into one's wealth identity and reconciling that with how to do good in the world. Quite often they can feel like they are opposing things, but um, one has to really reconcile with one's wealth identity and one's disposition towards wealth, which may differ from other family members. So there's a lot of inner work that needs to be done um, when going on this journey of family philanthropy. It's not just in the collective work, but there's also a lot of individual work that needs to be done, which I thought was just so, so, so incredible. I thought to just unpack that a little bit more. And if you are thinking of engaging your family with respect to philanthropic pursuits, whether they exist or not, what can you do as an individual? And I think it's really key to start to reflect on some questions for yourself. Why do you want to get involved in philanthropy? Who will be participating in the family's philanthropy? Um, Have you thought about who would advise you on this journey? Because like Stephanie was saying, it, it, it can be quite a complex world. There's from the structuring perspective, how are you going to go about this? Is this going to be a dedicated family foundation? Is this through a donor advised fund? Um, and so on and so forth. So who are your advisors that are going to help you sherpa you along this journey? Something to think about. And then thinking through the wider kind of culture and values Why do you want to give? What do you want to give? Um, What values are important to you? And what do you want to pass and contribute towards the wider family philanthropy and pass on to next generations beyond you? Um, and, And then start to think about what are the family's shared values? What are the most important shared values? And and key also, I would say, is communication. Um, understanding your desired and preferred communication style, but also um, taking into consideration the fact that other people in your family may have different communication styles. Um, there may be it may be quite implicit and not has not been spelled out. So start to think through. What are the ways that we do communicate in this family? Um, How can we improve the communication? And how can we then start to think about a decision-making framework that makes sense for us? How can we come together to take decisions on whether it's grant-making and things of the likes? And communication is not just, uh, like I say in my book, Lifetime to Legacy, it's not just about delivering a message, it's also about receiving. So how can you improve your listening skills, your ability to decode what other family members are saying or not saying? Sometimes you have to read the room, not through verbal communication, but non-verbal communication. So just a few tips to help you on this journey. Um, Thank you so, so much for tuning in. As always, take good care and God bless you.